Now, um, tonight, with our very distinguished panel, and um, I've been asked to remind our panellists that uh, we've allocated ten minutes, and I'm willing to, you know, let you know that you've got a couple of minutes to go, but I'm not willing to be a policeman, so if you want to go over, you'll have to blame yourself, not me. The first speaker is Jean-Pascal Van Ippersley. He is a globally recognised expert in climate change modelling and the study of the impact of human activities on climate. He's been a lead author and heavily involved in the IPCC processes for 20 years. And he's going to uh, talk to us tonight on climate change challenge and opportunities. Jean Pascal. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your presence and thank you to those uh, who organized this uh, successful event. 5,000 pages, that's the amount of paper represented by the last report in three volumes. 10 minutes. <laughs> the challenges, well, that's the first one. I'll do my best. But five minutes ago, my staff in Belgium put this presentation on my web page. <laughs> so if I have to skip some slides, you can get them afterwards. Don't worry. Why the IPCC was created <coughs> little more than 25 years ago? Well, it's to provide policymakers, and we just met Minister Hunt uh, half an hour ago, uh, to uh, provide policymakers with the best quality information about the uh, different dimensions of the climate change issue. The pure natural science aspect, but also the social, the economic, the technical aspects of both impacts, adaptation, vulnerability, and mitigation. The key messages from the last report in one slide, in case I cannot show you all the slides I have and which you'll be able to download afterwards, are the following. The first one is that human influence on the climate system is clear. There is no ambiguity there, no probability anywhere, a very simple and clear sentence. The second one and I'm not going to read every slide I will show you. I, I would like to reassure you. But I'd like to read with you this one, even if it takes a full minute of my 10 minutes. <laughs> because I think it's pretty important. Continued emissions of greenhouse gases will increase the likelihood of severe, pervasive, and irreversible impacts for both people and ecosystems. And it's a Universe, almost universal rule that those impacts on people are first on poor people. While climate change is a threat to sustainable developments, there are many opportunities, second word in my title, to integrate mitigation, adaptation, but also the pursuit, the pursuit of other societal objectives which are important like sustainable development, for example. In a nutshell, humanity has the means 
I repeat, the present tense is used, has the means to limit climate change and build a more sustainable and resilient future. If you have understood this, you have understood the key messages from the AR5. Still, I will try to illustrate a little more some of the, those points. The CO2 amount in the atmosphere is now about 30% higher than it has ever been, ever been in the last 800,000 years. And this is the main factor behind the warming. The reason there was such an increase over the last 200 years is mostly the burning of fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas. But also deforestation played a role. You see the numbers here as far as 2010 was concerned. The temperature is really increasing. And when you look at the temperature curve at the global scale, decade by decade, you see that each decade has been successively warmer over the past three or four decades than the preceding one. It's not only a question of average values, extreme events, such as the number of hot days, heat waves, and the number of extreme precipitation events, often leading to floods, has also been increasing since the middle of the 20th century. Acidification of the oceans is also an issue because about one quarter of the ocean, uh, uh, sorry, of the CO2 emissions coming from the burning, etc., is actually absorbed by the ocean. That's very nice. It's a very useful service that the ocean provides to us freely. But the cost of that service is that that water becomes more acidic which is not good, as you can imagine, for marine life. So there are impacts already underway, starting to be visible everywhere, impacts which have uh, costs as well, in terms of ecosystem losses, in terms of human life, in terms of health, in terms of people losing their homes, etc. From tropic to the poles, on all continents and in the ocean, and affecting rich and poor countries, unfortunately, with the poor affected first, but the rich usually affected a little later. The future. The future cannot be predicted. We are not astrologers. We are scientists. So we have to work with scenarios. These are the four key scenarios that the IPCC is considering in its last report. Three are stabilization scenarios at different values. And the top one is, is a kind of business as usual scenario, and that's the most extreme scenario, leading to very high concentration of CO2. When you feed those scenarios to climate models, these are the temperature curves you get at the global scale. The bottom scenario, the one which stabilizes the, temp the uh, concentration of CO2 at more or less at the present value in the long term, gives you a, still an additional increase in temperature of, of the order of one degree on top of what we have seen already over the past 200 years, uh, which is already almost one degree. The top scenario would lead the global temperature to increase further by three to five degrees 
average value 4 degrees on top of the present temperature, so above the uh, pre-industrial value, that's a range going from 4 to 6 degrees, and as you can see, it doesn't stop in 2100. It's continuing. What does it mean for Australia, for example, just to illustrate the fact that IPCC doesn't talk only about global values? So there, is, there are, of course, um, uh, regional, there is, of course, regional information, and there's a chapter, and we have a nota uh, of this chapter uh, here, Andy Reisinger. Uh, but you see that the values, the numbers, are not very different from the, uh, from the global value. Uh, again, an illustration in terms of the number of heat days and different, on, on a high scenario, uh, on different time scale, and you can see the increase in the number of hot days. And I know Andy is going to talk more about that, so I won't be longer on this. Sea level is increasing as well. It depends, of course, on the scenario. On a low scenario, it would probably be around 30 to 40 centimeters, uh, more than the 20 centimeters we have added already over the past 150 years or so. But in the top scenario, it's up to one meter. And it doesn't stop in 2100, as you can see. Uh, it continues to increase. So there are impacts in a number of sectors. And these are a few key examples only. Food and water shortages, increased poverty, increased migrations, coastal flooding. In front of those impacts, adaptation is taking place already now. There are steps in that direction. Just to give you an example of, again, of the potential for adaptation, and again, uh, Andy is going to talk more about that, so I won't be very long on this. For Okay, that's fine. Three minutes, that's fine. Um, is is um, this illustration for three key sectors, <coughs> coral reefs, flood damage, and damage to coastal infrastructure of the potential of adaptation. And the potential of adaptation is this, this small zone here, which, as you can see, I don't have much time to explain the details of here, but in a four-degree world, is quite limited. The potential for adaptation to reduce the risk from very high to something a little lower than very high is, exists. It's not zero, but it's limited. So risk of climate change increase with continued emissions, which of course justifies the need to combine adaptation and mitigation. You have a summary of those reasons for concern on the right hand of this diagram. It's the famous reason for concern diagram, five categories of risks. As you can see, the risk level increases with the temperature level. And as you can see, it's only basically with the blue scenario, the lowest scenario, that uh, it is possible not to enter uh, more or less the red zone on that diagram. And that, that uh, red zone uh, starts not very far if you take this thermometer, which has its zero on the pre-industrial value, so it means the reference point is the temperature at the pre-industrial time in the 18th century. You can see, without going to the details, that the red zone with high risk begins somewhere between 1.5 and 2 degrees for most of those, or at least for the two left criteria, which is kind of a posteriori justification for the 2-degree target and a discussion 
on uh, whether that target should be reinforced to 1.5. So this allows now to look a little bit at the mitigation side, which will be explored further by other talk. And a very important diagram in the last report is this diagram relating cumulated total CO2 emissions in billion tons of CO2 on this top line here, and the vertical axis is the temperature increase. You see there is an almost linear relationship between the cumulated emissions, the total emissions since the beginning of the industrialization, and the warming, which means that it is possible to know how much total CO2 one can emit, of course with some uncertainty, for a given temperature level. For two degrees, it's of the order of 3,000 billion tons of CO2. This is what be, what's behind this concept of carbon budget, the, the, with a probability level of staying under two degrees of 66%, the number is 2,900 billion tons of CO2. The small difficulty is that we have emitted already two-thirds of that, and what's remaining is 1,000. As we emit 40 per year, I leave you to compute how much time is left. Hopefully, you don't have to continue at the present scale and then stop in 25 years from now. You can do something more clever, and that is to decrease progressively, and if you do that, uh, you see there are scenarios in the literature such as this family of scenarios which reads zero emissions by the end of the century progressively. So it is possible to stay under two degrees, says the Working Group 3 volume of the IPCC report, using more, efficient, more efficiently energy, using more low-carbon and no-carbon energy, improving carbon sinks, uh, changing lifestyle and behavior as some of the key uh, areas where action is possible. The IPCC has also looked at the priorities in terms of changes in investment pattern, and as you can see, in the coming two decades, uh, on the low scenario, uh, the changes in investment pattern that will be compatible with that low scenario are of this order in terms of hundreds of billion dollars, US dollars per year, more or less. And as you can see, it's much more in energy efficiency and much more in renewable, and it's much less in fossil fuel extraction, uh, for example. There are co-benefits of mitigation measures, for example, and I took an example for Australia uh, in the health area. Uh, so humanity, as a conclusion, has a choice now, and the Paris Conference has a very important role on that, uh, in, this, in this year between a world with substantial mitigation that would lead to this temperature increase at the end of the century. It's a world where adaptation would still be needed. There would be still a lot of damage and a lot of impacts, but much less than the world that is compatible with the, uh, which is associated with the highest scenario. Uh, and this is the uh, reddish world you see here with much higher temperature. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Jean-Pascal. More than enough to think about there. <clears throat> Our next uh, speaker is uh, Andy Reisinger.
Uh, Andy served as coordinating lead author for the Fifth Assessment Report of the Intergovernmental Pan uh, Panel and also as a member of the core writing team for the Synthesis Report. In his day job, he's uh, Deputy Director International of the New Zealand Agriculture Greenhouse Gas Research Centre. And tonight he's going to talk to us on the vulnerabilities, impacts and adaptation to climate change focus on Australia. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, before I start, I would like to acknowledge that I, I had the privilege of coordinating this chapter that assessed impacts, adaptation, vulnerability for Australasia, which is Australia and New Zealand. But everything that I've learned about Australia came from Australian scientists, some of whom are in the audience tonight. And I feel very humbled about being the messenger, but I'm not the originator of this expertise that rests solidly in leading Australian expertise. So I want to expand a little bit on what Jean-Pascal talked about. One is that we have globally, but also in Australia, increasing evidence of impacts from climate change that's already occurring. Most of the evidence comes from shifts in ecosystems because they are most sensitive to changes in climatic conditions, whether that's changes in species distribution, increased disease patterns on corals, increased coral bleaching, changes in the migration patterns of the egg-laying times of birds, some invertebrates, but increasingly, and that's quite important, we're seeing documentable impacts from a changing climate on human systems. We see a shift in the balance between summer and winter mortality across the Australian population, change in agricultural productivity, change in, in maturation dates of, of, of wine growing areas, very important. Um, so so even, even where there's a lot of human interference, the signal is emerging from the noise. But not just that, another important element is that we have, sadly, a lot of experience over the last 10 years of the relevance, the impacts from extreme climatic events, whether it be droughts, flooding, wildfires, heat waves. They're demonstrating how sensitive our society is to climatic extremes. And that matters even if we're not always able to say whether a particular event would or wouldn't have happened in the absence of climate change, but what it demonstrates is how important those extremes are to our societal well-being, and most of those extremes, drought intensity, heat waves, bushfire risk, and, and flood risk, are projected to increase with climate change and increase in greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. So it's very worthwhile reminding us where we are so far on the warming trajectory, keeping in mind the impacts already experienced. That's the observed warming over Australia land area from a range of global databases. And you can then look at global climate models that try to simulate what's actually happening in the atmosphere, in the oceans, at a quite a high detail based on sound, solid, physical, basic principles. And you can run those models assuming that greenhouse gases don't exist and you don't get a very good match because essentially the natural drivers of climate change have, would have resulted in a roughly constant climate. You can run the same models now with greenhouse gas warming included, and you get a much better fit of the actual observed historical temperature trend, which is one of the lines of evidence that lead us to include that some of the warming that Australia has experienced over the last 50 to 100 years is due to the increase in greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. Based on that, you can then take those models to look, look into the future. 
under a variety of greenhouse gas concentrations depending on what the world chooses to do with regard to emissions. That blue band is the warming projected for Australia. If the world rapidly reduces greenhouse gas emissions to zero or, or below zero before the end of the 21st century. The alternative is, of course, an unmitigated disaster scenario where the world takes no steps whatsoever to reduce greenhouse gas emissions if it's a fossil fuel, dig it and burn it. And Australia could experience warming of four, maybe as high as six degrees under that scenario. And those trajectories mean something. They mean that the risks both from underlying climatic pressures but also from changing increases in, in extreme events would have increasing impacts on our society. They increase the risks that we're already familiar with, that we're already experiencing, but drive them upwards depending on the amount of warming. Just to illustrate that in a, in a more animated fashion, that's the, based on historical data, the average incidence of days in above 40 degrees Celsius in about 1990. Under a high emission scenario, that's the number of incidents by about the, the tw 2050s, and that's the number of incidents by the end of the 21st century. It gives the red continent a new meaning. I have to add that one model for very high emissions, if we rapidly reduce greenhouse gas concentrations, we might end up there by the end of the 21st century. So that's under a, a very high warming scenario. And, but ultimately, we care about heat waves, frankly, because we care about impacts on human health. The 2009 heat wave is estimated to have resulted in more than 300 excess deaths. And you can then look at how is population in the various centres projected to change under a median population scenario for Australia, and you get the change in heat exposure to days above 40 degrees Celsius. It's not just the physical climate that causes impacts, it's the way we choose to live our, our, our lives, how we construct our society. And that's a very stark reminder. It's not just the increase in heat waves, it's how we respond to it and, and where society places itself in harm's way that drives impacts and vulnerability. Another example, projected changes in runoff in major river basins per degree Celsius warming. So you can see that some of the most productive areas in the Murray-Darling Basin, average runoff change about minus 10%, and the far southwestern Australia, minus 25% per degree Celsius compared to now. Considerable uncertainty under the wettest end of scenarios, so the top 90 percentile, we might see no change in the Murray-Darling Basin, but still a reduction in far southwestern Australia. Under the driest end, we have another red continent with 20% reduction in the Murray-Darling Basin and 30% in far southwestern Australia per degree Celsius warming. Remember those warming trajectories. Um, but it's also worthwhile looking at the same plots based on absolute runoff because the, the red centre is somewhat misleading because if you take one drop of rainfall away, you're just half the rainfall in, in the very arid parts of Australia. <laughs> but you, you get the same patterns. So that's the wettest end of projections and that's the driest end of projections. Based on such physical climate assessments, the author team of our chapter which went through three rounds of peer review, put together a list of the key risks for Australia from climate change based on where do we actually have good evidence? Do we have multiple lines of evidence from modelling studies, from observations, from basic understanding? And what do we know about our ability to cope with such changes? We came up with a list of key risks that really warrant attention. One set of risks are 
is related to impacts where we think we can't actually avoid significant damages anymore, but they can be moderated by mitigation, but we can't avoid them anymore entirely. That's increased bleaching and changes in, st in the structure of coral reefs and constriction and loss of, mo of montane ecosystems. Thank you. Another set of impacts is amenable to re risk reduction both by reducing emissions and by adapting to them. Flooding, wildfire, water resources in southern Australia, and heat waves. And a third set of impacts are those that are particularly challenging to adapt to because we still don't quite know what's going to happen even if we know how much the world is going to warm. And that's the potential for very large sea level rise and the major damages at the upper end of those changes and a significant reduction in agricultural production if those dry ends of those scenarios are being realised. The question is, how do we adapt to those changes? And there's increasing recognition that, well, there's different ways of adapting. One is incremental adaptation, simply doing better in managing those risks than we are doing now. And just to illustrate that, in heat waste, there's one response you can take, and you can upscale that as Australia is already demonstrating with a lot of innovative power. Um, and that's, that's entirely legitimate. Incremental adaptation can be very important, ranging from implementing early warning systems, strengthening weather tightness of buildings, ensuring that rivers are dredged where they need to be dredged and that's ecologically sustainable, all these measures that we already know how to do. But especially at the upper end of climate change, there are some things that you cannot simply adapt to by doing better what you're doing now. For example, significant increase in drought risk, large increase in flooding, especially where existing infrastructure is in the way, in which case it warrants reconsideration. What are we doing here? Do we need to relocate buildings? Do industries have to shift? Do we fundamentally have to rebalance management objectives for water resources between economic, social and environmental objectives? And the important point is that such more transformational adaptation is really challenging, especially where public goods are involved. That's because it needs coordination across different levels of governance, different decision makers, different priorities across society. Transformation brings risks, even while it alleviates other risks, especially, to, for example, if you have an industry relocating in response to climate change, great for the industry, can be devastating for the communities left behind. Managing that requires a very active process, and that process takes a long, long time. It's different for private industry decisions, where you can simply say, okay, let's pack up and go. But public goods usually involve a much greater inertia because of the many different voices that come to bear. But if done well, those are real opportunities for strengthening society, increasing its resilience, and opening up new opportunities by, by removing existing vulnerabilities. And so effective adaptation has real potential to create a more vibrant, a more resilient, and a more prosperous world. I just want to leave with a couple of observations from the assessment process about knowledge gaps. One is that we're still heavily dominated by an assumption that the physical climate change is driving the impacts. What I try to hint at is that we know that actually now it's our human society that stands in the way of climate change, that's creating the clash. So better understanding the flexibility of human society, the role of governance to manage those transitions is a real important task, and we're only beginning to get the academic input and the merging of disciplines to get a more integrative picture. And the other thing is, of course, I mean, coming from New Zealand, I usually conclude my talk with saying, by the way, New Zealand is not an island. I could say Australia is not a continent. That's even sillier. 
But for heavily trade and export dependent nations, what's happening overseas critically matters. And quite often we treat the rest of the world in a very simplistic fashion where we try to understand the risks from climate change to our countries. And a better integration of, of the location of, of Australia or New Zealand for that matter within a globally changing dynamic to appreciate what the climate is throwing at us is a really important step to better locate the risks of climate change. And I want to leave it there and again acknowledge my co-authors um, and contributors to the chapter and reviewers that have, you know, allowed me to wax lyrical about Australia. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Um, New, New Zealand's got a lot to teach us, especially in rugby. We're, but we're, ho we're, we're hoping to be able to reciprocate the lesson on the weekend. Our next speaker is Dr Deborah Roberts. Um, she established and heads the Environmental Planning and Climate Protection Department uh, for, uh, at a municipality. I was going to ask you how to pronounce that municipality, so I've, I've gone over that, in Durban, uh, South Africa. She was a lead author of uh, Chapter 8, Urban Areas, and a contributing author of Chapter 12, Africa. And she's a member of the South African Climate Negotiating Team and sits on various international advisory bodies focused on climate change issues in cities. And tonight she's going to talk to us about urban areas and climate change adaptation. Thank you, Deborah. everyone and I'm going to start off with a confession. I'm very different to my fellow panellists and that's not only because I'm the only woman on the panel, though we should probably note that. Um, I'm not an international policy maker. It's a very, very long time since I could refer to myself as a research scientist. I am a local government official. I have very real dirt under these nails and we could ask ourselves why is someone like that involved in the fifth assessment report. It's really part of this mission that we take on every five to seven years to ensure that as we go through and assess this vast body of literature, that we do it in a way that unearths policy-relevant messages so that all of us can take better policy decisions. And that was my role on the urban adaptation chapter. I was the policy canary in the coal mine. So as we waded through the literature for four years, my job was to ensure that we did a deep dive to unearth as many of the important policy-relevant messages as we could. So what's of interest to us, if I could get the slide to move, uh, my slide. Spacebar? Yes, fabulous. What's new for those of us who are interested in urban areas in the fifth assessment report? Well, we've got a much stronger focus in the fifth assessment report on urban than we ever have. We've got a dedicated chapter on adaptation in working group two. We've got one on mitigation in working group three. Now, why have we suddenly settled in on urban in the fifth assessment report? Well, it's quite simply because climate change ain't the only game in town now, folks. In the 21st century, society is tackling a huge basket of challenges. So global environmental change, yes, climate change is an important part of that, but we're also struggling with biodiversity loss and upsetting of biogeochemical cycles. We've got social upheaval in various parts of the world. We've got economic collapse in the others. And all of those impacts are beginning to concentrate themselves. As Andy said, we're putting ourselves in the way of these problems in the world's cities. 
So it's not surprising that the high-level panel working on the post-2015 development agenda made this particular observation, that that agenda simply has to be relevant to urban dwellers. And it's going to be in cities where we win or lose the battle for sustainable development. So quite frankly, in the 21st century, you either go urban or you go home. And why is that the case? It's common sense. In urban centres, we're now concentrating people and we're concentrating assets. We became an urban species for the first time in 2008. Currently, we have 3.7 billion people living in the world's cities. Frighteningly, those numbers are going to double by 2050. And the majority of that growth is going to be in cities of the global south. Cities are also the places where we do the bulk of our economic activity and where we build the bulk of society's assets. According to our friends at McKinsey's, currently 600 cities around the world account for 60% of global GDP. And so if you're going to put people and activity and assets and economic uh, business into small geographical spaces, of course they're going to be vulnerable to climate change, which means things like floods, droughts, extreme heat, exacerbated by the urban heat island, precipitation, are all going to translate into problems like food security, human health, and infrastructural impacts and losses. So quite frankly, when you're looking to vulnerability and exposure to climate change, urban areas are where the climate change rubber really hits the road in the 21st century. And we can see the scale of the problem if we look at these two maps. This is a distribution of cities of over three-quarters of a million people in 1950. And you can see cities merrily scattered across the northern hemisphere. Africa is a bit of a naked emperor uh, in that era. But if we project but a decade forward from where we sit here tonight and we look again at the world, we'll see evidence of the fact that we are currently living in the most rapid period of urbanization in our species history. And you can see that the urban party is now being rocked by Africa and by Asia. What else is new in our chapter? Well, we point to the fact that there's a very strong relationship between the adaptation agenda and the development agenda. For any of you who know anything about the climate negotiations, you know we spend a lot of time festering over the issue of additionality. What specific impacts are associated with climate change? And our chapter makes a bit of a laughing stock of that notion. That split is largely artificial because under development, makes cities vulnerable, regardless of the types of risk we're looking at, whether that risk is poverty or climate change. And currently, we have very large development and infrastructure deficits around the world. And this is because most of the world's urban population lives in the low or middle-income developing countries. We're also seeing a loss of ecological infrastructure. Now, remember, our adaptation deficit comes not only from the lack of conventional infrastructure, but the fact that we're destroying the natural infrastructure, which is so critical in providing essential services to us. We also tragically still have a billion people living in informal settlements around the world. While that presents us with a global challenge of enormous scale, it also presents us with a unique global opportunity. Because of this underdevelopment, we're going to have to up our urban infrastructural spend over the next couple of decades. And we're going to probably double it from about the 10 trillion US dollars we're spending currently per annum to about 20 trillion in 2025. Now, this gives us an enormous opportunity to do something different as we build out these cities, to make them climate smart 
And to give you a sense of that, the scale of the opportunity that lurks, half of the built infrastructure that will exist in 2030 is simply not built today. And while we might focus on the opportunities of the cities of the global south that we're still literally building, we mustn't overlook the opportunities in the global north to replace aging infrastructure in a way that is also climate smart. But cities around the world are going to have very different and unequal abilities to access this adaptation dividend from this new urban build. And that's simply because of the distribution of resources. And we can see this illustrated very clearly in this graph, which looks at municipal spend per capita. You can see local governments in the US are going to do very well. Certainly Brazil's in there with a fighting chance. Many cities in Africa simply do not have that opportunity uh, lying on a silver plate for them. And so what our chapter points to is that if we look at urban areas across the globe, we've got a huge spectrum of adaptive capacity. On one side, cities that are failing to provide risk-reducing basic services and infrastructure to their residents, they have very low um, investment capacity. On the other end of the spectrum, cities that we are now terming climate resilient. They've provided the majority of the services and infrastructure they need. They've got decent investment capacity. They're now starting to look at adaptation policies. But the holy grail for us is the point that Andy made, is where is transformative adaptation? Where are those cities that have provided that infrastructure, that have the adaptation policies, but are reaching out to look for synergies with sustainable development, with ecological footprints, with mitigation? And that's really the sort of transformative opportunity we're looking for because we believe that has the fundamental ability to change the way that cities operate at a systemic level. Why do we want this integrated agenda? It's a point that's been made. We need it simply because the risks of climate change are going to increase with our continued high emissions and don't forget our failure to adapt. In our chapter, we spent a lot of time looking at the key risks that cities around the world are going to be exposed to and how they might be placed to reduce that risk through adaptation. And there are a number of key messages here. Firstly, high adaptation is far more effective in the present and near term, so in the era of committed <coughs> climate change, than it will be in the long term, so the two-degree world. By the time we get to a four-degree world, however, the risks are high, they remain high, and generally you find that there are scenarios that begin to emerge where adaptation is not possible. And that takes us into the world of loss and damage regarded by some as the third key pillar of the climate change debate. And we present a variety of case studies here. I've got the Durban one, and you can see by the time we get to the four-degree mark, the people in Durban believe we will not be able to adapt. So here is a city that simply will not be able to survive, as it does currently in a four-degree world. So how do we take this effective transformative adaptation and create this more vibrant world? I've made the point already. We've got to start integrating the big urban agendas. And those urban agendas are poverty reduction and service provision, disaster risk reduction, and the two big climate agendas. So what we're really looking for is integrated decision-making to generate multiple benefits, but also to deal with the trade-offs, because these the decisions aren't easy. There are going to be trade-offs. There are going to be winners and losers that we have to manage. Three minutes. Thanks. Gratefully for us, three of these big agendas overlap quite easily. So generally, if you're providing decent infrastructure, you're going to be dealing with poverty reduction and service provision. You're going to get some climate change adaptation benefits in there. You're going to deal with disaster risk reduction. And that overlap is particularly easy to achieve in our underdeveloped parts of the world. That's because 
those interventions generally deal with local impacts in the present and near term. More difficult to achieve and overlap with currently is the climate change mitigation agenda. And that's because the investments we make now in mitigation, the opportunities and consequences of those only emerge over time in the era of climate options. However, it is possible to find these integrated interventions. We have projects like these in the city of Durban where I work. For example, we've got community reforestation projects where poor peri-urban and rural communities earn sustainable livings out of creating massive new forests in certain parts of our city. That gives us, um, obviously, a poverty reduction advantage, but we also get climate change adaptation advantages by improved water supplies, improved water quality and quantity. Those forests take the peak of floods, so we get... Uh, a flood risk reduction, uh, which obviously gives us our DRR uh, benefit in there. And obviously the trees store carbon, so there's a climate change mitigation opportunity. So we believe it's those kinds of projects that we need to be seeking to leverage this more transformative urban development path. We also know and acknowledge in our chapter that as we move forward out of the era of committed climate change into the era of climate options, that the mitigation agenda must become more prominent at the urban level, simply because dangerous climate change will undermine every other development agenda that we have, and there will be a date when even strong adaptation is not going to help us unless we've mitigated appropriately. And this links to another new message. There's clearly a lot of work to be done in the world's cities, but who's going to do it? Well, quite frankly, the only people who are well-placed to do that, and Minister Corbell already pointed that out, are our local governments. And this is because their unique policy competency they literally at the coalface with the local stakeholders. They can leverage investment at a variety of uh, levels. They have economies of scale on their side. And they can introduce land or integrate land use and infrastructural planning to address our adaptation and mitigation needs in a way that is pro-poor and ecologically sustainable. But we're not reaping the advantage of this local government power simply because we haven't given local governments the policy levers they need to act. And what do they need? They need appropriate mandates. Someone needs to tell them that they can legally work on climate change to avoid hitting policy or resource glass ceilings. They need powers for planning and land use management. We need to see vertical alignment across the various levels of policy. Currently, there's a disjunction, again, Minister Corbell pointed that out in, in Australia, between what local is doing and what national is doing. They also need access to timely climate data and associated tools. They need to uh, be taught how to deal with this issue of uncertainty. They need to engage in iterative decision-making, report on their learning, and most importantly, we need to create powerful local leaders because leadership really does matter at the local level. Thanks very much. Thank you, Deborah. Our next uh, speaker is uh, Yuba, Dr. Yuga Sokona. And he's one of the co-chairs of the IPCC Working Group 3 for the fifth assessment report and a member of the Science Committee of Future Earth. Dr. Sakona is currently working for the South Centre as a specialist advisor on sustainable development. And it's this area he's going to talk to us tonight, mitigation of climate change, key findings and lessons learned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. On behalf of my 
co-coaches and uh, of the authors, some of the authors of this report are from this university, they are in the room. I'm trying to take the challenge in presenting the most important part of the report. You have, you have here important, but this is the most important part of the report. I will try to take the challenge and then to make it in 10 minutes or less and then taking advantage of some of the slides that have been already presented by uh, Jean-Pascal Vaniperzal. Despite the uh, uh, increased policies at different levels, from local to national to regional at global level, the greenhouse gas emissions has the growth have accelerated past those policies. And then as you can see it, and then from, 2000, from 1970 to 2010, the growth rate of the emissions from uh, 1970 to 2000, uh, to 2000 was 1.3 per year, percent per year, and uh, between 2000 and 2010, 2.2 per year, and then mainly, and then reaches a, 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 a level of almost 50 uh, gigaton of CO2 equivalent, uh, mainly from fossil fuel and uh, industrial processes. And uh, we have also witnessed uh, between 19, uh, between 1750 to 2010, more than half of the emissions have uh, taken place in the last 40 years, uh, mostly driven by uh, economic growth and, uh, and population. Uh, growth. And as you can see, it, uh, most of the recent GSG emission growth has been driven by growth of economy and then uh, uh, activities and then the uh, population. And uh, also, uh, during the past few years, the uh, decarbonization trend have completely reversed due to uh, more and more use of the, uh, in the electricity sector of the, the coal. And the, uh, we look at uh, different uh, scenarios uh, that are compatible with the two degree relative to pre-industrial level. And then those involve substantial technological, economic, and institutional challenges. And this has been presented by Jean-Pascal. I will not insist on it. Under the business as usual uh, scenario, we'll be heading to more than 1,000 ppm of CO2 equivalent. And uh, we uh, already uh, presented also by Jean-Pascal, the two-degree scenario is characterized by uh, uh, the concentration of uh, 330 to uh, 430 to 480 ppm CO2 equivalent. And this really require a transformation, fundamental transformation of the energy system, and then the decarbonization of the energy system, and it will require between uh, 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 up to 2050 uh, decrease of the emissions uh, from the 2010 level of 40 to 70 percent of decrease, and it requires a number of challenges. And even if you look at uh, less ambitious scenario, such as the three degree, that will require the similar uh, challenges we'll be facing. And it's and then the mitigation involves substantial upscaling of low carbon energy, and then from the uh, uh, 
the uh, two degree scenario, it will require in 2030 quadrupling of the uh, share of the low carbon uh, in the energy system. And then if we have, we look at the less ambitious scenario, such as the 580 to 720 ppm, it will require tripling the share of the uh, uh, low carbon in the energy system. And it's important to notice that the uh, short-term action, the short-term uh, action are uh, uh, very important and then they have uh, uh, they, they, they have impact on the uh, challenges in the future. And if we take the two-degree scenario and then uh, imagine that we uh, will not increase our emission, we stay at uh, 50 level, there will be no increase, and then what uh, that will look like. In that case, uh, from 2020, from 2030 to 2050, uh, that will require... Oh, sorry. I think that I have some uh, problem with the, uh, the slides, and then do th that is quite related to the... Uh, and that will uh, uh, lead to the reduction of the emission of 3% per year uh, on the, uh, uh, between 2030 and 2050. And then if we look at and then the uh, uh, share of the low carbon energy that will be uh, triple uh, between the, uh, the, the same period. And if uh, we are not delaying, we delay the emission and then we continue in a business as usual scenario. And then what will happen, and then we look at it, instead of emission of decrease of emission of 3% per year, and then we will have 6% uh, of reduction per year. And then the share also of the uh, low carbon energy will uh, triple instead of doubling. And then that will be uh, much more costly. Uh, and then this uh, scenario is uh, compatible with the uh, current uh, Cancun pledges that imply increased emission challenging for reaching the two degree uh, if we are continuing the business as usual scenario. And the mitigation cost estimates vary, vary but do not strongly affect global uh, GDP growth. And then the uh, uh, estimate that has been made, it will uh, cost 0 0.06 point per year of the global GDP. And avoiding dangerous climate change is necessary but not sufficient condition for sustainable development. And then looking only at mitigation and looking at mitigation that take uh, uh, into account some implication for other aspects of uh, sustainable development and equity. Those are some co-benefits as it has been uh, also presented by uh, Jean Pascal. And then choosing pathway that uh, taking all relevant objectives into account at the same time. And then it's necessary, the mitigation, and then the sustainable development aspect is much more broader than that. And the climate policy may be a regional entry point for meeting a larger array of policy objectives, such as the uh, energy security, 
the air quality, and then the, uh, not only, only the mitigation, if you look at those uh, three different aspects, only looking at the energy security, and then uh, only looking at the air quality, and only looking at uh, mitigation, all three objectives in, uh, uh, on the policy sources are much more effective than uh, each individual uh, aspect. And then, the, as this has been also presented, there is a number of co-benefits related to the mitigation for human health uh, that could be large and provide short-term incentive for climate policy, and I will not insist on that. And climate change mitigation is a global common problem, and that requires international cooperation and coordination across scale, as there is no single country no single region that can deal with the climate issues without the implication of the other region. And international cooperation is crucial, is fundamental for dealing with the problem. And those are very briefly some of the key findings of the contribution of the working group three uh, to the FIFA assessment report of IPCC. And thank you for your consideration. Thank you, but well, we've done a quick recalculation. We, we were running, uh, well, about 15 minutes late, so uh, we, we uh, plan to have the discussion now and finish it around quarter to eight. Um, now, um, we'll have a panel discussion, and joining the panel will be uh, two of our local heroes, uh, Frank Jotso and Mark Howden. Uh, Frank Jotso was a lead author on the IPCC Working Group 3, and part of the Global um, Deep Decarbonisation Pathways Project. Frank, if you'd just like to have a very brief outline of what you want to see. And Mark Howden, as, as, as the host, will be giving a vote of thanks, no, no doubt. But I think it's important to acknowledge our distinguished international visitors and thank them for their dedication, including for this outreach activity. So some of our most senior politicians gave time today uh, to really listen to, to what, the, what the IPCC found. Um, I'd just like to take a couple of minutes to make the link between some of what has been, has been presented tonight um, and the, the topic of the day, which is Australia's uh, uh, INDC uh, intended nationally determined contribution to the global climate change effort and the 2030 target. Now, Minister Cobell, he had to leave a few minutes ago, but um, what, what he said, if I'm paraphrasing correctly, is while it is a positive step, uh, it doesn't go far enough. Um, I'm a more sort of a half glasses half full kind of a person on this, and I would like to invert that, and I'd like to say, uh, while it is not enough, it is a really good first step for this government. Um, so it's not enough. Um, uh, the, the target, if you compare it across the different metrics, and I've got a piece on a conversation website and some background material on that, um, is towards the back of the pack, uh, according to most of the metrics that you can apply to it. Um, now, uh, international expectations are probably for Australia to be towards the front of the pack. Why? Well, uh, the uh, chapter on economics and ethics in the IPCC Fifth Assessment Report tells you that two uh, uh, 
solid lenses to take to that from an ethical point of view, uh, capacity and responsibility. Well, responsibility, we are the highest per capita emitter in the world. Capacity, well, we are among the richest countries in the world, and we have tremendous potential in this country to reduce emissions. Okay, simple as that. On top of that, of course, a strong national interest in strong global climate change action, right? So there's a legitimate uh, expectation internationally um, uh, for Australia to be more towards the front of the pack. Um, Now, two degrees. Um, The target as put forward, uh, the Australian one, is not at all compatible with a commensurate contribution to a global two-degree outcome. However, that said, hardly any other nations is. Okay, so there must be a ratcheting up progress down the track. Um, the good step, well, um, I think as most of, this, of us will be aware, this, this all takes place in an extremely difficult political environment, and I think it is fair to say it could have been much worse, much, much worse than what we saw yesterday. Um, uh, internationally, and uh, uh, I think... Uh, Looking at Howard Bamsey here, uh, he, he'd be able to tell you in, in, in much more fine-grained detail than I ever could, but um, it's fair to say that, that Australia would probably be regarded as a laggard, but no longer or not a recalcitrant with this, um, with this target. And I'm not, no, sorry, I'm not being cynical. I think this, this, this is an important and, 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 a, and a really fundamental difference, right? It's, it's, being, it's being in the tent or it's being not, not, not being in the tent. Okay, um, and this is this is the last thing I'll I'll say. Um, this gives the scientific, research, and policy community the opportunity to talk about what really matters, and that is how are we going to get emissions in this country on a downward trajectory? Right? How are we making that step from flatlining to decrease and ultimately decarbonisation? Because we now have a commitment by government to a reduction of over a quarter in emissions. Okay? And the question now is, and that's the question that the research community can really contribute to, is how we're going to get there. Where are the opportunities and what are the instruments that will be used? Thank you. Uh, and our, our next panellist will be um, Mark Howden, who's been a contributor to the IPCC for 24 years. And in the fifth assessment report... Uh, was a food security, uh, he uh, contributed to the food security chapter, uh, the Australian and New Zealand chapter, and the IPCC synthesis report. So, Mark. Um, thanks, Paul, and, and, and thanks again to, to our international uh, guests and contributors who have made such a, a valuable contribution to, today to the, the political debate, particularly up at uh, Parliament House. I just wanted to cover briefly food security. It hasn't been dealt with so far tonight, yet it's a critical issue for uh, Australia as we're emerging into an area where, where in fact, we can't take food security for granted any longer, Uh, and also globally um, and critically uh, for developing countries. Agriculture food security is already vulnerable. We can see this from the food price spikes back in 2008 and subsequently, uh, where this proportionately affected the poor across the globe and impacted on political processes, including perhaps triggering the Arab Spring. What we've seen across the globe is that uh, climate change has already reduced crop yields uh, to the tune of something like 6 to 8%. That might not sound that much, but that probably feeds over 300 million people, and that's how climate change is already impacting. The projections for the future are for much greater impacts than that. 
And those impacts are much likely to fall heavily in the tropics rather than in the temperate zones uh, like um, parts of Europe and North America. And again, those tropical areas are where the poor tend to live and climate change is likely to disproportionately affect them through those average reductions in yields. So it's not a very good picture. And it's even worse when we consider the global food security challenge ahead of us, where we have to double food production approximately by 2050. So we've heard about doubling of of urban activities, um, but we also have to double food production to feed those peoples in those cities and elsewhere. And that is going to happen at the same time we've got that serious climate change drag reducing those yields, reducing farm performance. At the same time, we're going to have increased variability in crop yields. Variability is poison to effective farm management, as we can see in Australia historically and right at the moment. And again, that variability disproportionately affects the poor and it disproportionately affects countries like Australia, where we're already significantly vulnerable. And that variability is particularly going to drive up food prices to sort of the same sorts of things we've already seen in terms of the food price spikes a few years ago, but probably magnified significantly. So not only the average price is likely to go up, but the variability in those prices is likely to go up as well, again, disproportionately affecting the poor. Now, there's many adaptations that are possible, uh, and those are particularly starting to be adopted in developed nations like Australia, uh, but there's a significant issue in terms of that adoption in uh, developing countries. Uh, And right across the globe, we actually will need to have adaptation technologies, adaptive institutions, and building adaptive capacity right across the board. And that's a really significant challenge, and we have to ramp up our response to that challenge right now. Thank you. So uh, if I could ask the uh, panel to uh, take a seat along the front here. Uh, We will have uh, roving microphones and uh, uh, to uh, assist the uh, discussion, um, maybe you should address your remark or your question to a specific panellist. And I will note you. It's been an interesting week, I think, in Australian politics. Uh, um, Our expectations for some progress on marriage equality have been dashed, whereas our worst fears on our contribution to mitigating global warming have somewhat been mitigated. (laughs) Uh, Now, if I could start off the discussion, maybe Jean-Pascal asking you a question. You met our Environment Minister this afternoon at Parliament House. I was just wondering what your impression was Did you leave that meeting uh, optimistic that the message that you came to Australia to bring is being heard? Do I have a microphone to... Oh, Oh, that's all. I know you have a microphone. Sorry, I have a microphone. I forgot, yes. Yes. Just project the voice. Well, (laughs) the mandate of IPCC is not to give good marks or bad marks to individual countries (laughs) or individual policy makers. That being said, I must say I found Minister Hunt very committed to, to his uh, job of Minister of Environment, and we had very good exchanges about the content of the IPCC uh, report as far as the need to decarbonize the world economy globally and to be on a pathway uh, to achieve that by the end of the century as a collective exercise uh, at the level of the international community. That's interesting to hear that because I think it's clear this week that our Prime Minister, uh, who takes a lot of notice of science, as was written this week, mainly political science, uh, has, got, has got the message that climate change is real 
and that uh, human beings contribute to it. And I think that that's, uh, that's um, somewhat heartening. Now, um, can, can I add something? Yes, on you may question? add something. Sure. On, on that very point, I, I, I think I, I will reflect the collective impression we had. There was not a hint, there was not a hint in any uh, part of the dialogue with the minister that there was any... Uh, doubt about the, the reality of climate change and the, uh, the fact that it was indeed uh, due to human activities. That was very clear. Okay, now it's over to you. Anyone? Uh, there's a question there. So who is, who is running the microphone? <laughs> we have a microphone runner and she's running. <laughs> if you could address your question to a particular person. Oh, no, the, I think I might address it to a number of people on the panel particularly anybody who's commented, yeah, um, commented on um, having some optimism about uh, the Australian government and Greg Hunt and, and others. Uh, I've been a lobbyist up in the parliament on and off for some time on climate change and I'm certainly very concerned about you know, just the spin and the exaggeration and really just plain dishonesty from a lot of our politicians. Um, I'm extremely sceptical about the uh, Abbott government seriously pursuing... Um, you know, it's announced target given that it's done everything to dismantle all the car- good positive carbon legislation from the, from the previous government. And I'm also concerned about the Labor Party too because once that legislation was all put in place and we set up the authorities, we had one minister doing everything he could to undermine uh, those organisations. And, of course, the Labor Party's target is one of um, uh, an aspirational target. And we have powerful business interests in this country. They work very, very hard... Ably assisted by um, news limited uh, newspapers and other sections uh, of, of the media, and we've just seen a lot of politics being played. So I'm afraid I'm a bit sceptical about about how far Australia is really going to go. My quick question, though, oh, is I was going to take that. As, I was <laughs> going to take that as a comment, but go on. <laughs> it, it is a comment. My quick question is: um, back at the Copenhagen negotiations, 103 nations rejected the idea of, of a two percent a two-degree sort of target. They said it was 1.5, was what they wanted, and it was underpinned from research from NASA and from the Potsdam Institute, Joachim Schoenhuber, uh, the Tyndall Climate Research Centre. Has that 1.5-degree sort of target somehow been lost? Um, because I, none of you, I think, really talked about that, and that is the, the, the level of a temperature increase which would ensure that we don't end up with catastrophic runaway global warming. And that well, Maybe Dr Sakona could uh, lead off with that answer. I think that during the assessment, we, uh, we are assessing the literature and uh, we assessed the number of scenarios that has been developed and then uh, we collected uh, 1,200 scenarios and then uh, 300 of them are business as usual and then 900 mitigation. Only one scenario considered 1.5 degrees. Okay, another comment? This gentleman here. Yes, well, thank you very much. I'm concerned that the projections which have been presented by a number of speakers here were all linear, but people who study the evolution and the history of the atmosphere know very well that uh, when the rates of climate change, temperature and so on, are high enough, uh, we reach tipping points and points of no return. This is the uh, consistent picture which appears from studies of the evolution of the atmosphere. This seems to have been overlooked now 
many times by many scientists and certainly by others. The other one, the uh, figure of two um, degrees C, is a political figure because, in effect, the continents, we know it, have already warmed up to 1.5 degrees Celsius, and the masking effect of sulfur aerosols are somewhere very close to one degree. We have exceeded it in scientific terms, but the term is still being used, uh, well, in political terms. The third point I want to make is that the entire discussion, political discussion on climate change in Australia, revolves around local emissions. Almost nobody uh, mentions the export of coal and gas, which is double or triple the amount which is emitted locally. So uh, where, where does this leave us? Thank you very much. Okay. We, or another comment or question? Yeah. I'd like to start by really congratulating you on continuing this absolutely critical work and continuing this fantastic delivery of these brilliant infographics and graphs which are freely available online and which, you know, we can use in forwarding this. And I, I wonder, as a question, whether you um, have a sense of where you've got the best traction from these sorts of results coming up to Paris and coming up to the future climate negotiations. Where do, you, where do you see people picking this new work up and running with it? Uh, Andy, do you want to have a go? I can. <laughs> you, you've got a uh, Yeah, so, I mean, responding to the previous point, I mean, the, the climate projections do not assume any linearity. They, they are the best represent, representation we can make of the detailed processes in the atmosphere as it responds to warming. What is critical is that we, we know that there are tipping points, especially in ecosystems, and we would love to know where they are, and it's just very, very hard to pinpoint them. So it's much more being aware that with every increase in warming, the likelihood of, of crossing one of those tipping points increases. But it's not that we assume that they aren't there, it's just very hard to demonstrate where they are. Which speaks again to completely agree with the point that the two degrees limit is a, is a political construct, which is well informed by science, but there's no scientific evidence that says 1.9 degrees good, 2.1 degrees bad. And I think that's very important to recognize that it's, it's eminently useful to guide mitigation objectives and targets. I mean, there's the Alice in Wonderland example where she says, so which door do I take? The rabbit says, well, where do you want to go? I don't care where I go. In, which, in that case, any door will do you. Mm. That's not helpful for setting mitigation objectives. But scientifically, from the impact side, the difference between 1.9 and 2.1 is probably very marginal, which is important to hold on to because it means that it's not a case of giving up if we don't manage to reach the two-degree limit because two-and-a-half degree would be a heck of a lot better than four degrees. It also means that adaptation remains a critical component of responding to climate change. And I think, understandably, in the conversations over the last 48 hours, people are focusing on emission reduction commitments, and that's a vitally important part but let's not forget that even if we are globally successful to limit warming to two degrees, adapting to that amount of change is still a substantial challenge for many locations, including in Australia. Thank you. This is pretty vague, and probably be a vague answer from the panel, but we hear a lot about we've only got five years to act or ten years to act, and the window of opportunity... Is there anything the panel can say in, in a useful way in terms of if we continue like we do and when we've seen the commitments from countries or the, the targets put out are not very ambitious, uh, 
is, is there anything the panel can say about, well, how many years do we have to act before we will definitely go over two degrees? It sounds like we're not far off that in years now. Thanks. I think I explained that uh, if we want to stay with a probability higher than two-thirds under the two-degree warming limit decided five years ago by international leaders... There is a carbon budget that amounts to 1,000 billion tons of CO2. Now, we emit 40,000 billion tons of CO2 per year, so that's 50 years, uh, 25 years, sorry, 25 years. But 25 years, if you assume that the rate stays constant, of course, it's much more if you decrease, and the sooner you decrease, the, the better. Uh, but of course, if you don't do anything for 25 years, then you have to go to zero if you want to keep within that budget. But if humanity is more clever, we should peak as soon as possible and then decrease, and that's how you get to zero well before the end of the century and respect that two-degree limit. Now, if the limit was 1.5, then it means decreasing and peaking earlier and decreasing even faster. But it's the same principle. A gentleman at the back there. Maybe while you're getting there, I've um, had a thought listening to you tonight. I, can, I could hear some of our commentators in this country saying you're just alarmists, you're just warmists, uh, you know, you're just scaring the pants off us for, for no... Uh, uh, for no real reason. Now, you gave us plenty of real reasons, but is the psychology we're all having to deal with here is that, like, little kids, if they get bad news or something, they'll put their head under the pillow, you know, or people want to hide under the desk and maybe suck their thumbs. There's no, there's no real answer to that, is there? Well, what do you think, Deborah? I mean, how do we get, how do we get past that um, uh, reflex, if you like? Perhaps I could also attempt to answer the previous question that yeah, was sure. unanswered. You know, where, where are we finding um, the most rapid take-up? And ironically, it's with the people who don't actually have the policy power. It's local government. They're literally clamouring at the door to get a foothold in Paris saying, we want to be out here to be part of the radical change that is necessary. But as... I mentioned in, in a prior session today, that's well and good, but it doesn't deal with the issue of power and, and the tension between the various levels of government and the fear that nation-states have of connected city-states taking over the world. So I think there are bigger geopolitics um, in, in that, that, that particular space. I think to answer the second question, that's why we felt that the urban chapters were so important. They are chapters which raise the positive opportunities, that there is an answer to the question of where do we act and how do we act at scale, because that's been the problem. There's been a lot of exciting pilot work um, around the world, but how do we really ratchet this up so that we get global change? Um, and that's why we feel that the new urban messages are very important messages for Paris, if your economies are focused in your urban areas, if your people are there experiencing the health, well-being impacts we've all spoken about, and we can give a development narrative 
to both the global north and global south, which says if you take money you're going to spend anyway and spend it in a different way, there are all these multiple benefits to reap. And you also then remain globally competitive and adopt the moral high ground. So we think that there's a lot of opportunity in the urban message, particularly to move out of the doom and gloom to say he has a really positive input into a global development path we all understand. Because again, you know, I was saying in an earlier session today, I actually use the fifth assessment report to scare people. I show them this sort of 9,000 pages on my desk and say, you either read that or you listen to me. Which one would you want to do? Um, okay, that's terrific. Uh, maybe th we'll make this our last question for the night. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much for excellent presentations. My name is Tom Swan. I'm a researcher at the Australia Institute. And I'd actually like to go back to a comment from before and pose it as a question uh, about Australia's plans to export more coal. Uh, we know that we need, need to leave most of the world's carbon in the ground, and this has been widely accepted by the IPCC and many world leaders. Our leader, uh, our national leader, says he can think of a few things more damaging than leaving coal in the ground unsold. Uh, we have a larger share of the world uh, coal market than Saudi Arabia has of the world uh, oil market, and we're looking to uh, something in the order of 50% to double our exports. Is that compatible, from a technical point of view, with a two-degree world? Can I just uh, add to that, because um, we've been hearing a lot this week about the fact that if we do export more Australian coal, uh, which would mean that uh, China uses less of its coal and India uses less of its because their coal has a greater intensity, whereas our coal hasn't. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a better quality of coal and therefore um, uh, the argument goes um, is friendlier to the atmosphere. Uh, um, that, that's, the, that's the argument we've been hearing um, in question time every day this week. And I'm, I'm just wondering, um, picking up on, on, on that, that's just me value-adding, you know, uh, <laughs> in, in an articulate way. But anyway, uh, who would like um, to pick up that answer? Would you like to pick it up? I, I think that in the IPCC report, in the FIFA assessment report, we look at uh, consumption-based uh, emissions and then production-based emissions mm. as well because we could not present all the uh, findings of the report. And it's very difficult to look at individual uh, country and individual situation, and then we have to look at the aggregate. And if we, are, uh, we want to lead to the two degrees, there is no way that we do not have to start decarbonizing mm. the uh, entire economy starting the energy. Uh, system, and then the stringent action we need to start as soon as possible. If we delay, and then it will be challenging. Maybe some of the technology we are thinking we will not we will not get them. Those technology we need to get uh, uh, beyond the reduction of the emission. We need to have negative emission, and the implication for that is related to massive afforestation. And we have no idea where we will get land, and then how much that will cost. And all those have to be uh, taken in account. But taking a specific country, it's very difficult to, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to respond. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a fascinating uh, and to some extent disturbing, although, I, Deborah, I think you're right. We have to also give people hope, you know, that we can do things, which is a message that not only you gave, but uh, all our speakers said, well, we can do stuff. 
let's hope we start doing more stuff soon. So thank, <laughs> thank you very much. And uh, there are some refreshments and drinks upstairs uh, um, for those of you who um, feel like, uh, like to um, have some refreshments and maybe uh, have a bit more of a chat. So thank you to our panellists and um, thanks for coming to Australia. Even thank you for getting to Australia.